before we jump into our passage this morning in Romans chapter 12, uh, we're going to start the way we always start with our young ones. So young ones, if I can have your attention, I'm going to tell you what this passage is about. I'm going to tell you what the sermon's going to be about. This is where we're going, okay? Uh, I'm going to open up with this question. Uh, have you ever thought about your pinky toe? And like, what is it good for? Just to like, think about, your, think about your pinky toe. Kids, who here likes their pinky toe? Hey, Henry likes his pinky toe. Okay. Uh, Henry, do you have a favorite, your right or left pinky toe? <laughs> your right one? Okay. Anybody else love their pinky toes? Do you know what, what does your pinky toe do? It's, it's a toe, and I think that's right. I think it helps you balance. Okay, how about this? Okay, so what about eyebrows? Who here, like, do you like your eyebrows? Okay, yeah, we like eyebrows. Okay, good. Uh, why do we have eyebrows? Why did God give us eyebrows? Why do y'all think, kids? Who thinks they know why we have eyebrows? Anybody? Anybody want to guess? Druzy. So we don't look weird without them. That's exactly right. No, that is, that is true. Like some people think, ah, oh, we have eyebrows to keep like sweat and rain out of our, our eyes. I don't think that's really what they're for. No, it's scientists think like they, they, uh, they help you understand, like, yeah, so you don't look weird. So actually, you know what other people, uh, so <laughs> wait, how do we say this? Other people know how you're feeling and how you're doing. Okay, without even looking at my face, how am I feeling right now? surprised. How am I feeling right now? Mad, angry, and I barely have eyebrows, and you can see that from like a really far away. Okay, MIT, these scientists at this really uh, smart college, they did a test, and they said it's easier to tell someone who they are by their eyebrows than by looking at their eyes. Like, that's weird, but Drewsy's like right on it. It's so you don't look weird. It's so you look like yourself. That's why we have eyebrows. All right, how about this? Uh, how about that little uh, ball in the corner of your eye, like look at your neighbor, like look in their eyes, that little, little itty bitty ball in the corner of your eye, like what is that for? Paul, it holds water, okay, what, who else, who else thinks they know what that little itty bitty ball in the corner, Peyton, help you see better, uh, doctors, are you listening, dad, because they don't know, Actually, we don't know what that little, it's called the plica semilunaris, and, and we're actually not exactly sure what it does, but it does something. God gave us this plica semilunaris. All to say, what Paul is going to tell us today is every part of the body matters. Like, he uses this picture of, like, our bodies to say, you know this, because God designed you the way he designed you, you know every part of your body matters. In Romans 12, here's what Paul says. We, he's talking about the church, we though many, there are a lot of us, we though many are one body in Christ. And individually, we are members of one another. We belong to one another. Together we make up this body. The church, this one, is a whole body. And you, each of you kids, each of you are part of it. And here's the like, here's the so what. Like, what is that? Okay, so what? What's the point? It means, kids, young ones, you need the church. Because how good, how good would a pinky toe on its own, cut off from the body, how good would a pinky toe be on its own? It'd be nothing. It'd be gross and silly. Like, pinky toe, pinky fingers, every part of it. Like, you need the church. You need to belong to this body in order 
for you to function the way you're supposed to function. Uh, and here's what this also means. Not only do you need the church, this is really important, young ones. The church needs you. We try to tell you all that every Sunday, and we hope you believe it. The church, you may think like, I'm just a kid. We need you. The church needs you. We need you as much as we need our pinky toe, our left arm, our right eye. The church needs you like a body needs its head, shoulders, knees, and toes, all of them, and our eyebrows, and our plica similunaris. Even if you're like, I don't even know what good I am to the church, like the plica similunaris, that thing in the corner of your eye. Yeah, I don't know, you know, so what? We need you. We know we need you because you're a part of the body. God knows why he made you. So just like every one of the parts of our body is important, kids, you are important to the church. And we need you. And this is the last thing. Paul tells us that we're not, you know, we're, he's not making us the body right now that one day we're, he says we are the body. We are the body of Jesus. And that's because Jesus saved you in his life and in his death, which saves you from your death to get eternal life with him. And if you have been saved to be with Jesus, guess what that means? You've also been saved to be with everyone else who has been saved to be with Jesus. Like if you are with Jesus, you're also with those, the other ones who are with Jesus. So we really are already right now, we are the church, which means we need to act like the church. We need to act like one body, which means we love one another and we, we help each other love Jesus. That's why we're here. And this is what we're going to see in Paul's letter uh, in Romans chapter 12. This is, everyone, this is a really, really, really big transition in the letter to the Romans. Getting to chapter 12, we get to a lot of the practical stuff now. The practical, so what of the gospel? And we're thinking, finally, like just tell me what I'm supposed to do. Like we like that stuff. But, say this. In a few minutes, when we get into the practical stuff, we actually may start to long for that theology stuff because the practical stuff is just as big as the theology stuff. So please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading Romans chapter 12, five verses, verses 1 to 5. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For is in, as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So the first part, you know, catching all of us up, the first part of Romans was the gospel of what Jesus has accomplished in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, and, the whole, and that the Holy Spirit is now applying working out that salvation in his people. And his people uh, includes what Paul has just come out of saying in Romans 9, 10, 11. His saved people includes Jews and Gentiles. Christian Jews and Christian Gentiles compose the new covenant community of the church. 
And here we get to the so what. Here in Romans 12, we come to the like, so what does it look like for Gentiles and Jews, for different people to be the church, to be this new covenant community? And Paul says, if you understand the gospel, all that stuff, Romans 1 to 11, then you'll live like this, you know, beginning here in Romans 12. So if you understand the gospel, Paul says, then present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And you can't just, you can't just, you know, peruse over that. It, like that, that's weird. So pause, sit in that weirdness. It's that, like that is weird language for both Jews and Gentiles to hear. Not because like they're new to sacrificing stuff. Jews sacrificed animals all the time to, to God. Uh, Gentile, Greek, pagans, they sacrificed animals. They sacrificed tons of animals to their pagan gods all the time. So it's not like this idea of sacrificing that, that's weird. But this is different. This is strange because you're the sacrifice. So put yourself, if you would, put, put, imagine, go back in time with me and imagine you're an ancient Near Eastern Jew or Greek. You, you get to pick, okay? And you're checking out this new church thing. Like, what's all the noise about this Jesus of Nazareth guy who died and, you know, came back to life? And, okay, and who are these followers of the way? Who are these Christians? And what are they about? So you find some Christians, you find a church, and you, and you ask, and you're like, okay, so where's your temple? And you hear, oh, we have no temple. The people of God are now the temple. And you think, okay, well, well, then where do your priests work? And say, oh, we have no priests. And then you ask, well, well, then where are your sacrifices? And you hear, we want you to be the sacrifice. I mean, that's how it would sound. You know, that's not how they would say it in that creepy, like, cult-like way. But that's how they would probably hear, like, oh, you're the sacrifice. I mean, this would be weird to Jews and Gentiles to hear Paul saying, yeah, offer yourself up, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And, and it's strange, too, because Paul can't, he cannot mean that you're sacrificing your life to atone for your sin in order to procure God's favor. You need to sacrifice all so that God will accept you. He can't be saying that because everything he just said in chapters 1 to 11, Paul's been very clear, Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice that covers over our sins. This is also weird because Paul says you are a living sacrifice. And what Jews and Gentiles both know is that once you offer up a sacrifice, that sacrifice is done. You can't sacrifice that thing again. It's done. It's been sacrificed. So one commentator said it like this. He said, the trouble with a living sacrifice is it keeps crawling off the altar. That's you. This is an everyday sacrifice yourself thing and paul knows that's weird he knows that's weird so he says okay yeah i know weird so don't be conformed to this world that doesn't like this don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind what does he mean there by like don't be conformed to this world paul paul himself lived in a world of greek pagans who believed that the physical was passing and unimportant. Uh, and he lived in a world where, where Jews thought, no, 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 we offer up these sacrifices, but they've missed that Jesus, they're all pointed to Jesus, who is this ultimate sacrifice now, and now you are being called to a life of sacrifice. He lived in this, uh, this, this very strange uh, mix of a world, and, and even along with those, you know, the Greek pagans who, who believed in Zeus, and, and these, he, he also lived uh, with this new rising school of Stoicism, 
Stoicism was becoming popular, which uh, said, you know, we're all about fatalism. That is, your fate is fixed no matter what you do. So you're going to suffer, no big deal, embrace it, accept it, it is what it is. Along with another rising school, uh, Greek school of Epicureanism, which uh, said, oh no, like history is totally random, so you need to make your future. Make your future, go for the good stuff, always avoid suffering. Okay, that, that was the world of Paul. How about us? What is, do not be conformed to this world. Well, we live in increasingly postmodern world. Maybe you hear that stuff. But even in this postmodern world, let's first be really clear, there are still a plenty modernists in this world. Modernists believe that new is better than old. It's just better. New is better than old. Human reason, it is plenty sufficient for us to figure out what we need to figure out and progress. Because human history is only progressing. Humankind is only going to progress and get better. Uh, that, that this thing of self-consciousness, the self, that is what is most unique, and that is what is most important. And the world is growing increasingly postmodern. And the postmodernist, this is the world you live in, believes the world is not rational. The world's not rational, and there is no grand story that makes sense of all of our individual stories. Like, there's a point to it. That's not true, the postmodern says. Postmodernist says, you know, these worldviews, everybody's got these worldviews. You know what worldviews are good for? Only thing worldviews are good for is oppression and discrimination. Everyone just needs to be free to create their own version of truth and their own reality and their own morality and then stop messing with each other. There is, the postmodernists would say there is no fixed meaning, and this is really important, the postmodernists would say, in language, there is no real connection between language and reality. And so all we can hope for is irony, parody, and therapy. So, what is it to not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind? Like, what is it first? Like, what is it that renews your mind that then transforms you? What is it that renews your heart and transforms you? It's everything that Paul has already said. It's the gospel of Jesus, Romans 1 to 11. It's a mind that grows more and more in the knowledge of what Jesus has done for us in his life and in his death and in his resurrection that grows in knowledge of what it means to be united to a living Savior and to have this salvation already eternally secured and to know it's also being worked out presently in our lives, yes, individually in each of our lives and our lives corporately because we have been united to one another because we have been united to Christ by faith. And so grow, we, we, to be renewed is to grow in sharing this salvation communally, this communion that we have with Jesus because even though you may feel it, you are not alone. A mind renewed by the gospel is obsessed with all of us seeing Jesus, being with Jesus, the revelation of Jesus in all of his glory, wanting to see him more and more and more until we actually come face to face with him again. And we will. To be renewed and not conform to the world means we know that the physical matters. The physical, the physical matters as much as the spiritual. And your choices do matter. And God is sovereign. So history is not random. And suffering is awful, but we suffer with one another. 
so you are not self-sufficient. We need Jesus, and we need each other. This world, it does make sense, even if the world can't make sense of the world. The only way to truly make sense of reality and truth and morality is through a crucified Savior dying for His enemies. Because human history will end in judgment. That is where we are headed. And Jesus is our only hope. We need Him and we need His people to get through this life to that next life and to gather others in this life that they might be with us in that next life. That gospel renewing of your mind it transforms you, Paul says, into a living sacrifice. Offering yourself, even your body, offering all of yourself up to God. Offering yourself up as a living sacrifice means to put to death that you belong to yourself. It means to put to death that you have a right to live as you choose. It means you put to death that, you, you know, this a living sacrifice. You put to death that you know what's best for your life and how it should go and what success means for you. A living sacrifice is the belief in a lifestyle that you do not exist for your own pleasure. And God does not exist for your pleasure. You exist for God's pleasure. And God will test that faith, Paul says. Not to, he's going to test that faith not to push you away, but in order to draw you closer because that's what these tests do. Not to confuse you, but to remind you of you, his will for your life, which is that you love him and you love his people, that you live for him and you live with his people. But this living sacrifice thing, it's also weird because he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And isn't that bad grammar? Like ending a sentence with a preposition or starting a sentence with a conjunction. Shouldn't Paul have said, present your bodies as living sacrifices. No. The, that rule, and I've got uh, an English professor, that rule against ending sentences with prepositions, it's a fake rule, y'all. It's a fake rule invented a century after Shakespeare died. Like not beginning sentences with a conjunction. You can do both of them. Be free. Okay? Uh, Paul is also, he is intentional here. The Christian life of sacrifice it's lived in community, not apart from community. He means it. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, one living sacrifice, because we live this life as one body, the body of Christ. So when Paul says in verse 3, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. That's not an insult. He's not, he's not you know, being harsh. He's not shaming. He says, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with so be sober here. Think with sober judgment. He's saying, you may, you may not think much of the church, but you need it. It may not look impressive. It is God's institution. It is God's covenant community. Verse 4, we're one body, and not all the members serve the same function, and so every individual member needs the rest of the body to function. Imagine you're the right eye, and you look at the hand, and you say, silly hand, you're not an eye. What good are you? In fact, all of you members, none of you are eyes. And left eye, yeah, you're okay. But, you know, get lost. I, I, the eye, don't need you, and I'm out of here. 
I mean, it's ridiculous. Like, it's ridiculous. What good is an eye ripped out of its socket? It's gross. It's worthless. Paul's point is it would be, it would be just as ridiculous and just as false for a Christian and just as deadly for a Christian to look at the church and say, I don't need you Christians. Me, Jesus, my Bible. No, you desperately need the church. Like a body is made up of individual members and the individual members make up one body, so it is with Jesus' body of which we are a part. That is, that's how we relate to Jesus is with one another, with each other. Why do you need the church? And this is just the first. This is the first reason. I mean, here we go, you know, the rest of these Sundays talking about why we need each other and how we are specifically going to serve each other with our own specific gifts. But right here, you've got to start with this. First, uh, if you want to know God, if you want to know Jesus, you have to be an active, participating part of the body, the church. And, and, and by the way, this local expression of the church, this church needs the church across the world and across history, across time and space. Uh, the, the, C.S. Lewis, uh, this author, philosopher, uh, uh, Christian uh, philosopher, he had two, two best friends in the whole wide world, J.R.R. Tolkien, who was another author, uh, and uh, another guy named Ronald, who was another author. Uh, oh, sorry, Ronald is what Tolkien was called. And then uh, this other guy, Charles Williams, who's another author. So these three authors. So the three of them, Lewis, Ronald, and Charles, best of friends. And then tragically, Charles dies. He dies unexpectedly. And, and Lewis, as he's grieving and he's thinking uh, about Charles's death, this is the first thought he has. At the beginning, he says, well, I still have Ronald and we'll be closer than ever before. Now that Charles is gone, at, at least I'll have more of Ronald than I ever did before. And as time goes by, Lewis realizes just how absolutely wrong he was. He does not have more of Ronald now. Uh, now that Charles is gone, he actually has less of Ronald because there was a side of Ronald uh, that only Charles, who's now gone, that only Charles could bring out that Lewis could not. Is it, this is what Lewis realizes. He says, in each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I'm not large enough to call the whole man into activity. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. People are really deep, and people are really complex. Every single person who has ever lived, deep and complex, and you can't really get to know someone by yourself. It takes a community to draw out a whole person. <clears throat> and Lewis and Paul, Paul is <laughs> saying that if that's true of another human being, then how true must it be of the God-man, Jesus Christ? Like, you won't. You cannot know Jesus just by yourself. But the deeper you get into the church, the deeper you will get into the life of Jesus. That's why we need Christians who are ethnically different from one another. That's why we need Christians who are politically different from one another. It's why we need older Christians who have walked this life longer than the rest of us. It's why you need Christians who are the same age as you so you know that you're not crazy going through what you're going through. 
This is why we need Christians who are younger than you. We need middle schoolers. We need elementary schoolers. We need toddlers who still have wonder in their eyes when they hear that Jesus loves them. Who still live a life of dependence so, uh, on those who love them and take care of them so that you can remember you are a child of God and you are supposed to have that childlike faith and that childlike dependence. We need little itty-bitty ones. Babies who are this concrete picture of need. That's us. That's who you're supposed to be like. You, you me, we, you need all the church. And to think soberly about yourself is also to believe that the church also needs you. You need the church, the church needs you. Verse 5, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Again, how weird would it be for your foot? Like imagine you're a foot and you start to think, man, I can't grab stuff like those two hands up there. Like I'm just the worst foot. I'm not even the worst. I'm no good. I'm useless. I'm out of here. And the foot severs itself from, like, that's craziness. The body would be in so much trouble without its foot. Paul's point is that the body is designed to work with all of the other parts working together. There are no dispensable parts of the body. And there are those of us here who really, really know this. Because our bodies don't work like they're supposed to work. Like, we know it. Not, you know, the eyebrow is not, indispen- is not dispensable. The plica similunaris, we don't know what it does. We, yeah, we want that thing. And don't say, don't say, what, oh, well, you know, what about the appendix? What about tonsils, adenoids, wisdom teeth, the left arterial uh, appendage of the heart? Yo, God did not form us thinking, you know, I'm going to throw in a belly button. Like, it's, uh, like, for fun. Like, our super brilliant, smart doctors know how a lot of this stuff actually helps us before uh, we're born when we're in the womb and then how it helps us after birth and, and, and some of it then, we're just not sure yet. But don't, you know, as you analyze this metaphor, don't miss the very excellence of this metaphor. The church is a body and you may think you're part of the, uh, that, that um, you're a part of the church body that doesn't matter. Like you just don't matter to the church. That is not true. That is false. Yes, stop thinking that. That's not true. Uh, Paul says that is absolutely not true. The church needs you. So when you wake up on Sunday mornings and you have that thought, should I go to church today? Uh, uh, like, we all have that thought. I have that thought. Should I go to church today? Uh, like, have you ever thought, in addition to, yeah, I need to go because I need Jesus and, and I need others. Have you ever thought, well, I have to go because the church needs me. That is true. You are not inconsequential to this body. The church body needs you. You are not expendable. You are necessary to this body. We need you, every single one of you. I know, uh, it's, y'all remember the, uh, a little history, World War II history. Uh, there's this incredible part of World War II history. It's all so incredible. But this emergency evacuation of Dunkirk, there's, there's actually a really great, there are a ton of great movies about it. But it's spring, uh, 1940, and Hitler's panzer divisions, they're, they're sweeping through fan, France. Uh, they're just tearing apart, decimating French troops, and they're on their path to invade Great Britain. 
Uh, and the Dutch and the Belgians, they've already surrendered. The, the British expeditionary force and its allies, they are cut off. Uh, and they are surrounded uh, in France, along this narrow strip of France uh, and Belgium, in the port of, of Dunkirk, the Channel Port. There are 340,000 British troops, uh, British and actually allied forces, and, and they are facing certain death as Germany moves in. German troops are only a few miles away in the hills of France. It's, it's going to be a slaughter, and the British Royal Navy it doesn't have enough ships, only has enough to evacuate 1,700 men, but there are 340,000. In the House of Commons in Great Britain, they're told to brace for the worst outcome. None of them may make, we're about to lose our entire army. And the troops that are there, they know their fate. They know what's coming. And then with no hope in sight, a bizarre fleet of ships appears on the horizon of the English Channel. You've got trawlers, tugboats, fishing sloops, lifeboats, sailboats, pleasure crafts, an island ferry, and America's J-class yacht, the Endeavor. And all of them are manned by civilians, speeding to the rescue of their soldiers. So you've got pilots up in the air who are the Royal Air Force who are fighting the German Luftwaffe Air Force, and that ra underneath a ragtag armada rescued every single one of those troops. They rescued all of these troops, and they returned them home to England. You know, warfare is this horrible thing, it, but it's this, it's this common biblical metaphor that we have for this life because we are in a spiritual war. Good and evil, that stuff is real, and we are in this spiritual war. And, and this, and this thing, those, those were soldiers who were fighting for their country, fighting for civilians, and then needing their civilians to come and fight for her soldiers. The church is a body. It is something like that. The church is a body of many members, and we need each other to believe the gospel, to fight for each other, to serve one another, to come after one another, so that together we will win this war. The church needs you. And to end, let me bring this back to the beginning. If you get the gospel, you'll live this way. Present your bodies as one living sacrifice. And Paul says, the church offering yourself as a living sacrifice, that's your spiritual worship. Carl Truman, who's a church historian, uh, he, he has said, uh, he's a current modern church historian, he's said that the benchmarks, the benchmarks as we think about like worship and spiritual worship, he says the benchmarks for contemporary worship services today this is it. He says the, the benchmark is rock concerts, stand-up comedy, and winsome Hallmark Channel sentimentality, like your best life now kind of stuff. And Truman says the problem with much Christian worship in the contemporary world is not that it is too entertaining, but that it is not entertaining enough. And he says what churches, uh, uh, what worship in most churches neglect today is tragedy. And we love tragedy. We're, we're irresistibly drawn to stories of the tragic. Uh, when we want to be lifted out of the predictable like routine of our daily lives, or when we want to know that we are not alone in the tragedy of the routine of our daily lives, like we love like, like the days of our lives. Like soap operas. From soap operas to Shakespeare to fail videos on the YouTube uh, to Harry you know, Hogwarts and the House of Thrones stuff, 
to Kevin Costner and Lord of the Rings at the same time as The Office. Try that, Office and Lord of the Rings in your hands. Uh, it, they're both tragic. Um, Truman, again, he says, tragedy is a form of art and of entertainment highlights death. And death is central to true Christian worship. Christian worship should immerse people in the reality of the tragedy of the human fall and of all subsequent human life. It's only this kind of worship that actually provides us with the appropriate language to praise the God of resurrection. Of all places, the church should surely be the most realistic. We worship a crucified Savior who willingly sacrificed himself to save his church. He did it willingly. In John chapter 10, right before the point of no return when Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem and then go to the cross, this is what Jesus says. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Our living death, as it were, our living sacrifice, it will result in eternal life because of his death for our deaths. And so what we do now is we praise him. And we do it together because we can only do this faithfully together. He has saved us for himself so that we would love and worship him together. An Old Testament scholar has put it this way. He said, the aim of redemption, it is worship. And that's the order of things. Redemption first, then worship. So this thing that we've just started to answer, just tell me what I'm supposed to do because of this gospel, worship Jesus together with us. Let's pray. Father, we, we do, we lift up our words which we feel are weak and insufficient, but we lift them up in praise to you. In praise of our Lord and Savior who has done what we cannot do and has overcome our sin, the ultimate sacrifice for us. Lord, as you have gathered us to yourself and as you have gathered us to one another, bless us to continue to serve one another with the gospel, to continue to love one another with grace, to hold out that ultimate hope to everyone here, and Lord, to then take it out into the world, uh, Lord, that others, that you might gather more and more to your church, and not just here at Cornerstone, but across Houston, across the United States, across the world, and across history, Lord, that this gospel would continue to go out. We pray, and we pray it all for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.